in our work, it, it is also about like, how do we scale empathy in this moment, right? And especially right now, what is the story that we can tell that brings folks along? And we really begin at a human-centered approach in terms of, or community-centered approach, really, to what is the story that they want us to tell? Hey everyone, it's Noah Barnett, the VP of Marketing here at Feather. And today I'm joined by Jasmine Chavez, the VP of Innovation, Equity, and Communications at Hispanics in Philanthropy. Jasmine, welcome to the studio. Thanks so much, Noah. I'm so excited to be here. Me too. I'm looking forward to this conversation and really getting into how you all lead uh, both communications and marketing at Hispanics and Philanthropy. But before we do that, I would love to know a little bit more about your background and what was the squiggle that has gotten you to this point in the work that you're doing alongside Hispanics and Philanthropy? Awesome. Well, thanks again for having me. I'm really excited to connect with you all. Um, you know, my journey was a very unconventional journey. I never thought about going into communications. I did not think of it as a career path when I was in college, even when I was um, in high school. So I grew up and documented here in Denver, Colorado. And the reason that's important is because it'll come into like the role that I play now at Hispanic Philanthropy around purposeful marketing and the campaigns that we do. But I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, in a lot of like immigrant first generation households, like if I would have been like, oh, I'm going to work in a press release or like in a communications firm, my parents would have been like, no, you're going to be a doctor or surgeon or oh, that's not going to make you money. And so as like many kids, I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be an immigration lawyer. And so that's the path that I really took. And I'd been an advocate and activist really most of my high school, college career. And so when I graduated from college, I graduated with a degree in ethnic studies and history. Um, as well as a leadership certificate, and was really on the law school track. While I was in law school, I had the opportunity to work at the National Park Service in the Department of the Interior around the creation of the American Latino Museum. And I was what they called me a cultural strategist, which was, I think, a title that they made up at the time. And my job was to go around the country and meet with Latino communities and hear the stories of what it means to them to be American Latinos. And within that, I got to work with a lot of different PR firms, and I fell in love with the storytelling that we were hearing and I, and just like the way that these firms were capturing that and really informing what this museum needed to be. And so from that, even while I was in law school, I remember thinking that impact litigation takes a really long time and it takes a significant toll on people. And so I thought, what if we could change hearts and minds and change narratives before we have to litigate and therefore we save time and money and really kind of persuade people in a different way. And everybody thought I was crazy. And so I kind of had put that thought on the back burner and kept going with my law degree, graduated, moved to New York City. Um, I did not pass the bar in New York City. And but by that point, I had already been about three years into the National Park Service. And I felt and I got a job with a Latino civil rights firm, Latino Justice Pearl Death. And when they hired me, I'd actually applied to be a lawyer and they said no. And so I applied to work as their communications, uh, I think a coordinator or something. And I remember very clearly the executive director and general counsel of the firm said, you know, you can't go from communications to practice law here. Like, I know if you're trying to be sneaky, it's not going to work. And I honestly was like, I'm not trying to sneak in and be a lawyer. Like, I'm actually looking at the ways in which we can use digital communications to organize communities and shape narratives around the litigation. And he was like, OK, let's try it. And so I was their first digital strategist that came on board working with their communications director, John Garcia, who is an incredible mentor and friend of mine. Um, and so 
with that, that really began my career as a communications person, um, and I fell in love with it. I fell in love with this idea around the ways in which we use digital tools to organize communities, um, how it is that we get people's stories out, what are the narratives that really shape action. Um, and I have been in a career around communications ever since. Um, after that civil rights firm, I was there for about three and a half, almost four years. Um, I ran some really incredible campaigns with them that had significant impact in New York City, specifically around stop and frisk, um, as well as some litigation protecting immigrant rights. Um, and then I went to work for the New York City Council because there's no better way to really cut your teeth in New York City communications and politics than to work in the council office. And through there, I got to work on really cool projects around innovation and digital communications as well. From there, I, I stayed in digital strategy and somehow ended up I've worked both in the philanthropy side, but also I worked at, I've, I've been lucky to work at two digital PR firms. Um, one of them is Kivit and the other one is Bully Pulpit, um, leading digital advertising communications campaigns, both politically, but also for consumers and companies. And I've loved it. And I ended up in philanthropy absolutely by accident. I started as a consultant to help Hispanics and philanthropy really leverage their brand when they got a new um, president. And I stayed on. And so through that, I've been able to build a portfolio that has our communications team, racial equity, as well as digital innovation as part of our work. What's beautiful about your story that I find so often in other stories of what was their squiggle is that the, at the heart and purpose of what you were intending to do and kind of that spark stayed consistent. Just the mechanism yeah. or tools you're now leveraging to work on that purpose, you know, before it was maybe the law and the legal system, maybe by design or encouragement, given your background. And now you're using story and narrative and communications, but still to a similar outcome, just upstream, you know, before exactly. you get to legal litigation, as you mentioned. And I think that's what's just beautiful about the people that work in nonprofit marketing and just nonprofits in general, is we all have this aligned vision and the flexibility to use the tools needed to make that happen. And it just happens we're in marketing now, like many listening to this as well. So you shared that now you run communications at Hispanics in Philanthropy. For those that are unfamiliar with that, could you give us like the elevator pitch? You know, we're marketers. So give us the short elevator pitch on how you would describe uh, Hispanics in Philanthropy. Sure. So um, Hispanics and Philanthropists really is a transnational impact catalyst that um, really looks at the ways in which philanthropic institutions are giving money to Latine communities, both in the United States, but also in Latin America. So we are what we call a philanthropic serving organization, and we work with all, all philanthropic institutions, both private, community, small, um, and we ensure that our communities are getting the resources they need. And so anytime there's an issue that impacts the Latin community in the Americas and in the Caribbean, Hispanics and Philanthropy is one of the first um, to be able to funnel resources down to nonprofit leaders and, not, and communities across. Yeah, it's a wonderful mission. And just doing research prior to our call, it's incredible to see the work and the extent at which that work goes across um, I think your CEO said something like everything Latinx is underfunded. And so we're working on all of those different things. Um, and that's really important. And as I can believe, you know, digital strategy and marketing plays a big role into that. But can you kind of talk to what practically you oversee and how you're using digital strategy communications to mobilize individuals towards that mission? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. So less than 1% of philanthropic resources actually reaches the Latinx communities. And so our mission is to move that dial. We use digital and communication strategies to be able to tell the stories of the nonprofit organizations on the ground that are doing really powerful work. We also tell the stories of um, 
the Latino philanthropic leaders that are doing this really critical work, and not just at the executive level, but at the program level as well, program officers, um, different different folks, right, that work within the philanthropic ecosystem. And then we also work to elevate the thought leadership of our own um, staff as well, and the directors who lead our programs. And so through that, you know, we really try to weave a narrative that focuses um, on an asset-framed a narrative of the Latino community and not one that is a deficit framed, you know, in the sense of like, poor us, poor them, they're going through so much. We're really looking at the power that we have as a community. You know, we have a three, tri- three trillion economic buying power, which would make us like the fifth largest GDP, excuse me, GDP if we were our own country. And so that we are a powerful force, not just politically, but economically, socially, civically. And so we really paint it from the lens of like, this is the incredible work that is happening across the Americas. And we want to connect funders to those opportunities, but also really build that thought leadership and the even the brand, right, of the individual nonprofit leaders that are doing this work on the ground. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful view of we are presenting the opportunity, not the obstacles. And I exactly. think that's something all nonprofit leaders can really look at is we often try to raise money or drive advocacy against obstacles when really, as we were talking before, you know, going to a football analogy, people like winning teams and success. We were talking about Coach Prime and different things. But it's like they're more likely to get on the winning team, you know, and fund opportunities and to be a part of opportunities. And I've seen that very frequently, both within the studio here talking to leaders, but also in my own work with nonprofits, where when we paint the picture of optimism, more funds flow because it, it, it's an open question of, well, how far can we take this? not how do we survive this or how do we overcome this? It's like, you know, green space. It's expansive as an aperture versus like, okay, we got to solve this little problem. Cause usually little, not little problems, but when we paint our problems as something that is, is constrained or constricted, you get funding at an equal weight of that versus like, this is the huge opportunity. Where are you going to go with me on this journey? It's like the bigger question, bigger opportunity, bigger funding uh, kind of mindset. And I love that. So you talked about telling stories of the nonprofits that you all work with, um, up-leveling the, the content and thought leadership that your organization's putting out and just the opportunity that exists um, and just even the reality from the assets standpoint. How do you think about measuring success? Because often marketing is seen as like a means to the mission or as I like to see, it's like marketers or communicators are seen as supporting of the mission and even marketing strategy is a little bit unreliable. But I see it as like, and you see it as you just reflected, is like marketing's mission critical. Like marketers are strategic leaders and marketing strategy can actually prove real impact. How do you showcase that or even report on that inside your organization? That's a great question. You know, when I first came on, HIP had never had um, a digital strategist, really. They had your traditional comms person. And that, and of course, that one comms person was doing everything, right? So they were doing all the website management, all the media outreach, all the writing, everything, everything. And at that moment, we were looking at very much kind of like the vanity metrics, right? You were looking at the traditional KPIs of like impressions and reach and and at that time, it was also like building their newsletter. Um, they had a really low newsletter uh, just because, again, they hadn't really ever focused on their digital side. And so when I came in, we were focusing on just those things. Can we expand the reach? Can we increase impressions? And can we increase the number of subscribers in the newsletter? And we were able to do that pretty successfully within our first year and really kind of expand the footprint, not just of the organization, but begin to also expand the footprint 
and the thought leadership of Anamadi, the president and CEO, who's still the current president and CEO, and she's phenomenal. And once I built the team a little bit bigger, you know, now we went from a team of three to like a mighty team um, of, oh my gosh, I think now there's like seven of us. And from there, you know, we really shifted focus around how do we tell stories so that people understand our work and understand our mission and then understand our reach, like our actual reach in terms of our grant making. Um, and we shifted to a lot of storytelling. And even within that storytelling, it was also tied to the visibility. Can we make it visible enough to also continue funding for the programs and continue funding for this work? And so they're not metrics that I'm like necessarily meeting on a dashboard. I do work closely with our develop. Now we have actually a much larger development team and we are able to kind of measure some of that and point to those things. And we'll still do some of the traditional metrics in terms of looking, um, you know, we use Muckrack. And so we look at also our media placements, share of voice. And so we'll still look at how far our reach has been year per year. But we are also looking at the ways in which our audiences are engaging and sharing the content and are they engaging in conversation. And so one of our most powerful platforms is LinkedIn. And that is because that's where we're seeing the most amount of people who are engaging in conversations. They want to know more about the program. And we're like usually connecting, not just with other funders, but we're connecting the organizations to funders, to the work, to these audiences. And we're looking at a lot of conversations. And so for us, impact isn't just, it's no longer just impressions and it's no longer going to be reach, but it is focused around, do people really understand the work that we're doing? And are we telling the right story about not just our work, but the issues that are impacting our community? And also, are we being a resource, right? For us, you know, our motto is kind of like build, fund, and fuel. And so are we building the stories and the connections that we need to build enough to get them the funding that they need so that our communities are fueled to do the work that they need to do, right? And so that has kind of, that's what has shifted for us these last couple of years in terms of really looking at what is our impact and how does it continue to sustain and support the work that we're doing. Yeah. And it's a common evolution. I think it's important is that in the beginning, as you mentioned, it is about reach and engagement with a specific offer yeah. that you had, which was the newsletter. And that might be where many listeners are, which is just, hey, we got to focus on how are we reaching people? And then how are we activating them to do even just something simple? Like, can we move them from a rented channel to an own channel, which is like, I get them on my newsletter instead of living on social, right? I, that's a channel I don't control. I'm borrowing it. We're bringing them back into an owned environment. As you mentioned, now that's become more complex in looking at it, but now it's looking at not just reach or how I was interpreting it is what Jonah Berger, who's a, a professor at Wharton talks about, which is you're not just reaching people, you're actually getting uh, noticed and noticed mm -hmm. is different than reach. Cause I can reach you, you know, Jasmine, but like, you and trust it. You have to me. trust us. Exactly. Which turns into activation. Exactly. And and I think I think that activation part is so important because we have to be seen as a trusted source on the variety of issues that are impacting our community. And if we cannot be seen as that, then that's really problematic because we're not just informing a general audience about these things, but we're also informing funders about this work as well. Absolutely. Well, here on marketing, uh, Good Marketing Unplugged is we like to get into the weeds a little bit. So I would love for you to share maybe yeah. a, a, a recent initiative, strategy, or campaign that like outperformed expectations. And what did you learn from that that you're pulling forward into future efforts? That's a great question. I feel like we have so many campaigns <laughs> um, that we're constantly running. You know, we have different, we have 10 different programmatic areas. And so each program has a lot of different stories to tell. We have a lot of grantees. So it really depends. I think one of the ones that really stands out for me is that we had a COVID relief fund campaign in 2020. 
obviously with the pandemic, everything really shifted. And I'm originally from Colorado. I lived in New York and I was in New York um, during the pandemic. And we were able to kind of raise the flag immediately with our staff and say, things are not okay. This is going to have a significant impact on our communities. Let's begin to activate now. What are we hearing, not just in New York City, but what are we hearing across the country? And so we started speaking immediately with philanthropic partners just because we knew that in terms of not just our doctors and our nurses, but the people who were delivering our food, who were still kind of like on the front line of service, were predominantly Latino or people of color, right? And so we quickly were able to raise funds to support communities across the country. And our COVID relief fund focused not just on raising dollars for communities and for organizations, but it was also to create a hyper-local volunteer strategy so that folks knew what to do within their own backyards. And so we worked with close to about 30 organizations across the country. We met with them. We launched um, HipGive, which is our crowdfunding platform. It's the only Latino bilingual crowdfunding platform in the Americas. We launched a campaign on there that took money from individual donors. And from there, we then worked with the individual organizations themselves and did communications trainings and digital trainings with them so that they could create digital assets to promote not just the work that they were doing, but the resources that were available within their nonprofit. Simply because at the time we saw people who were running after school programs all of a sudden become emergency shelters um, that were providing uh, safety, you know, protection, um, Wi-Fi for schools. They were doing virtual learning. And so everybody's work shifted. And so we wanted to make sure that people understood how they could support nationally, but how they could also support locally within their backyard. We were able to raise over $2 million for that from individual donors, plus philanthropy came in to match some of that. Um, and more than anything, we created a map that really showed the impact and the, the disparity of COVID on Latino communities, but also the people who were doing the work to be able to combat that disparity. And we created this very virtual map, not just in the U.S., but also in Mexico, and it really allowed us to see across the country who was the organization that was within your community doing this powerful work so that the funds could go directly to them if you wanted to, or they could go to a national pot that, that we would then be able to kind of give to folks. But we also saw a huge increase in people volunteering directly with these organizations or providing um, donations to them as well in terms of food, materials, cleaning supplies, whatever they needed. So we got a lot of backpacks donated to a few centers as well. And so that was a really powerful campaign that really connected community to funders and, uh, and nonprofits to philanthropy. And it was successful in the sense that it provided, I think, in a moment of just feeling helpless and feeling overwhelmed by everything. It provided a direction for people to get involved and it provided a pathway to do it either at a national level or at a local level. And it showed the people who were doing the good work. Yeah. I love that example because it exposes two things that are very much top of mind that I think marketers have a marketers and comms people have a unique ability to focus on is two vectors of philanthropy is participation and discoverability. And so participation is the activation of individuals that are not participating um, currently in philanthropy. They're not giving to organizations. That doesn't mean they don't want to. And I think this is what we see. And there's a famous quote that's like, people aren't ungenerous. They're just unimaginative and very busy. And it's this idea of like, how does marketing and comms in this example activate participation in a moment when people are feeling helpless? They don't know what to do. You said you gave them direction. 
It also solved the second thing, which is discoverability, which is like, hey, you can serve this cause on the national level if that's your your cup of tea, or you can go straight down and volunteer, get involved locally. And that combination of tapping participation and then solving for discoverability, I think is where that campaign really shines from my perspective. And, and it's something that as listeners are thinking about designing campaigns, I think it's like, okay, how do we look at our campaign structure and think about how is this going to solve participation? How is this going to um, invite discoverability? Because often that that is a challenge. It's not actually people don't have challenge. money or resources to give. It's that like we don't solve this. And that's where marketing and comms can step in. Are there lessons from that campaign that you're now pulling forward into your campaigns you're running in 23 and 24? Absolutely. There's a few different lessons learned. I think from that campaign, because we actually worked with a lot of a few indigenous organizations, you know, we ran a campaign on our hip give platform that is our individual crowdfunding platform called Lenguas Vivas, which means like language is alive. And the outreach, the marketing, the capacity building was done in a, about six different Mayan languages because we learned the importance of ensuring language access, um, even within our own community. Um, and so that for us was kind of like ensuring like we have to be able to create bilingual campaigns, not just from English to Spanish, but when we're working with indigenous communities in Mexico or Latin America in indigenous languages and be able to follow through with our brand promise from capacity side to production side, advertising side, that those communities are getting that information, right? The other thing we learned is that, and we try to really bring this into our grant and with our grantees and our grant making is that it isn't enough for us to create the collateral material that gets them to tell their story. Right. It's one thing for us to say, here's a flyer that we made and here's your digital toolkit and here's your graphics that you're going to use for the campaign. If they didn't learn that themselves, then we're also doing a disservice because then if they want to create their own materials, then they're kind of at a loss in terms of where do I do it? How do I do it? Who does it? And so what we've done now is done something similar in the sense that when we're doing these types of uh, communications campaigns to highlight the work of our grantees, we do a communications training with them so that they know how to use Canva to create their own graphics. And they have a basic understanding of graphic design and what works and what doesn't work, right? So that they have the tools that they need to be able to continue to tell their story even after our grant making cycle is done with them. And that also helps us because we keep an eye on our grantees through social media, through what was formerly Twitter X, uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, and we share quite a bit what our grantees are doing because it isn't the, the communications campaigns that we create. They're not about us, about Hispanics and philanthropy. But again, our focus is very much focused on the community and the leaders and nonprofits and the work that's being done on the ground. And so if, if we can instill that skill set um, as a part of our grant making cycle, then that's a skill set that they can take and go, you know, for the organization or personally. But we have found that when we do that, the production of, of the storytelling that they do really increases. And it also provides additional resources for us to be able to help them in, in, in disseminating that information as well. Yeah, it reminds me of a similar concept in like foundations funding, like capacity building. It's like, hey, we could give you money, but we could also help you learn how to make money. And this way, it's saying, hey, like we need to do communications capacity building, like your ability to communicate and market yourself is deeply important. And it also feels like the right thing to do is like, how do we not only activate people to get engaged, but how do we also activate people to tell their own stories? And exactly. I think it's a really powerful thing that you've brought up that others can embed in their campaign design, which is like, how do we not only think about how do we connect the community to the cause, but how do we actually let the cause connect to the community? 
And like, mm -hmm. it's, it's both. You don't just try to get the funding, but you can also activate the cost to really expand itself and to invite mobilization. So yeah, it's really great. Absolutely. Absolutely. You all have done a lot of innovative campaigns. You've shared about kind of hip give and how innovative that was, uh, multilingual campaigning. Uh, obviously, we live in like this fast paced digital world. Like, how do you even encourage your team or maybe even yourself to stay innovative, you know, and, and to keep pushing the edge and to keep thinking about, well, what's next or how can we be creative and not just go back to the same inkwell? Well, I think for us, um, there's a lot of like continued learning that our teams do in professional development. So whether that is specifically around marketing strategies or storytelling strategies, even more, even like digital advertising strategies, but we also look to our partners, right? So there's a lot of beautiful storytelling that comes from a lot of our philanthropic partners. And we really look at the ways in which they're telling the story of their grantees. How are they talking about impact as well? And we also think about what are the ways in which we can push it a little bit? How can we be, how can we be a little bit different? And I think the great thing is that our president and CEO really kind of gives us the runway to test new things. And so we will test different styles of carousels. We'll test both English, Spanish, Spanish, English, and we also look a lot to see what's coming out of Mexico City. You know, I have a team, my my hip give, which is a digital innovation team, is out of Mexico City and is led by an incredible um, woman. It's an all all fam led tech team. Um, Junoeth Mejia leads that work, but Mexico City is like a hub of innovation and creativity. And so a lot of times we are also looking to see what our partners and what our marketing folks doing down there and what are the ways in which we can pivot to similar things. And then we also do a lot of activations in Mexico City, right? So that um, we'll join different marches or different collaborations and host our own events with folks and with different nonprofits down there that are, it could be everything from a Loteria Drag Bingo um, in Mexico, at a Mexico City Cafe to joining um, one of the largest climate justice marches um, focusing and building our own paper mache colibri, which is a hummingbird, right? And, and then telling the story behind that. And so we look at both the physical activations, we look at what even pop culture is doing in the U.S., but also in Mexico and Latin America and find ways in which we can kind of adapt into it or even test those types of different kind of narrative models as well. Yeah, it's great because I think inspiration for campaigns can come from anywhere. And I love that you commented totally. on the offline to inspire the online or just the fact that like there's a gray area now on like what is online and what is offline. Like even yeah. this week, TikTok announced that they're going to be selling advertising in physical spaces. And it's like TikTok is a mobile only thing. Like how do you yeah. they want you to be able to leverage TikTok content in physical spaces or out of home spaces? And they feel like they can do that. Or Netflix is opening movie theaters. And it's, it's like this whole idea of like, how does this blended approach look as we move yeah. to this world where I don't think there's really going to be lines between online and offline in the future. I think it's just going to be experience design. And we as marketers need to be thinking about how we craft experiences across the digital and kind of non-digital divides. And we can get inspired from a lot of different places. I think another good example for us is, you know, with um, with migrants being bused around the country right now, right? That is a narrative that we're just like, we have a migration program and we ha also have a, a climate justice program that is also focused on migration. And one of the conversations we had was, what if we had either, do we reach out to, we did, a, actually, let me back up. We did uh, like the mock style storytelling at the UN General Assembly for Climate at the New Yorkian Poetry Cafe in New York City. And that was a physical activation that was telling the story of climate justice from the Latino lens. 
during the UN General Assembly week, and we had a great turnout, right? And so now, similarly, around the stories of migration here in the U.S., we're thinking of, can we partner with, like, StoryCorp, right, and figure out, is there a way for us to be able to tell the stories of, of the nonprofit leaders that are accepting migrants in the cities, and what it, what is what is the impact there, right? And so we're also looking at who are the powerful storytellers in our community that can help us share these stories out into broader audiences, both from the physical space, but also online, like you said. Yeah. And really mobilizing communities to do more than just get involved, but they can actually be a part of the marketing. Um, again, there's this great concept that I always go back to, which is you need to design stories to be shared. <laughs> and what I mean by that is like, there's a story that's heard, and then there's a story that's designed to be shared. And some of the longest lasting stories that, you know, are from ages and ages and ages are all stories that kind of have these embedded narrative designs in them. And so how do we mobilize our community with stories to reshare and how does that amplify our campaigns and this is something that i know that you and your team at hip have been doing for a long time which is basically mobilizing communities to be a part of the marketing for those that are looking to do something similar within their cause area or their community do you have any tips or guidance on how people can better mobilize their community to help expand the community well, I think when we're mobilizing communities, we're looking at ways in which, you know, and, and I love what you said about designing a story to be shared, but it's also looking in our work, it, it is also about like, how do we scale empathy in this moment, right? And, and especially right now, what is the story that we can tell that brings folks along? And we really begin at a human-centered approach in terms of, or community-centered approach, really, to what is the story that they want us to tell? Because I think the very first thing you have to pause and look at what are the assumptions that you're making about that story and then meeting directly with impacted communities to understand what their shared and lived experience actually is. And is that in line with your assumption of what that story is? From there and having been informed from the community itself, then I think you can help shape those narratives that are going to be able to be whether it's storytelling or digital campaigns or whatever it might be, but unless you stop and hear from them directly, like you could completely shape a wrong narrative, right? That could actually be more damaging than helpful for the work that you're doing. And so being able to pause and really meet with impacted folks first is going to be the best thing that you could possibly do and just be a listener, right? Like you can inform after you listen, but don't try to shape it as they're sharing because it's going to be rude, right? You're kind of imposing what your idea is of, of that of that story that again, might not be their reality. Once you have it, I think bringing them along and being able to echo back, this is what I'm hearing. This is what I think the story could be. Do you agree? Is this in line? Can I build it in a way that is respective of your experiences and not causing any additional harm to the community? And then from there, for the most part, you will get permission from them to be able to tell that story and to do it in a really beautiful way. I think there's there's certain brands, especially corporate brands, who I think have done a really good job around this. And I see, I see the difference when brands meet with community first versus those that just assume what the story is. And, that, and those are the ones that tend to be a lot more harmful and are the ones that tend to get under attack. So I think being able to pause is going to be the most critical step in terms of bringing that, that community along. And then I think building a story that is rooted around shared narratives and values that the community has is how I think we then begin to scale that empathy. Because then it's more of a human experience. It's something that you can connect with directly. And it isn't so much about something that's impacting just a specific group. But if we're, if we're rooting it in our shared values, 
then it's it can be scalable, it can be shareable, it could be something that impacts everyone across different communities at that time. You highlighted such an important point that kind of reminds me where we started the conversation where you said you started down this path of kind of the legal side and then you ended up in communications and you know the legal as a as a lawyer you have the law as your tool in marketing and communications you have stories but you just mm-hmm. highlighted something important just like laws or legal decisions can create precedents that actually have really negative effects in the future that are unexpected if you're not careful we as marketers actually have the same opportunity or maybe the the same challenge that we need to be cautious on is that the story or the narrative that works today or in this moment might actually have negative consequences long term and it's that same caution and as you mentioned community first thinking that's really really important and i haven't thought about it from that angle before and so i appreciate you kind of highlighting that stories can also be negative and have negative oh, yeah. outcomes just as much as they can have positive so how we design stories is extremely important. And, and I think this, this idea of utilizing communications and your background in legal to think through digital marketing or digital mobilization and movement building is something that you've spent your whole career doing. Could you share any more about this and what you've learned and what listeners could maybe implement today from legal theory on how they manage their marketing and communications? <laughs> Yeah, so um, I actually loved working with the lawyers that I work with at Latino Justice because they did allow me to come in and they would say like, here are the facts, here's the issues, these are the things that we're going through, this is what, what is the impact. And I would get to just be a good listener and say, oh my gosh, you know what, we, sh- we should do this, this, and this. And one of the campaigns, um, this was in 20, 2012, I think, we were working with a group of Latino um, and Korean workers actually at a Korean restaurant in downtown um, K-Town in Manhattan who had been robbed of their wages. And the restaurant owners, we were we were currently um, suing the restaurant owners for back pay. And it was just really, it was, you know, the owner had all the money in the world, but the workers had been fired. Um, they didn't have money. And it was like, man, by the time we get to get these folks their money, it's going to be like a year, right? And so I remember meeting with our team and kind of hearing the stories from the workers, hearing what our attorneys were working on and what the facts of the case were and kind of the direction that they were taking. And I told him, you know, at the time Yelp was kind of like coming up and I was like, what if we leave a variety of bad reviews and really focus on the way that they treat their staff? And we activate our local community. We, we let them know in the newsletter, meet the workers who are fighting back against this restaurant. Here's what's happening to them. Help us leave a, a whole like swath of bad reviews but focused on, I really love the restaurant, but I really wish that they would pay their workers and, and have like a story that was shared behind what the workers were experiencing because we couldn't put, we couldn't highlight, we couldn't put them in any more danger, but we could create a public outcry campaign that also, if you're someone who's going to go eat there and you're looking at Yelp, you're going to stop and kind of check to see how the food is. But if you have a whole bunch of reviews that they're not paying their workers or they're not giving them breaks or they're mistreating them, you're going to think twice about going there. And so it was actually the part of what helped us settle the case a lot faster that we had over about a hundred bad reviews that people left on this restaurant's page. And the owner got really pissed off that we were messing with their business and nobody wants to be, nobody wants to, their money to be messed with. And so that was one of the fastest ways that we were able to kind of bring attention, but also bring community along and also get to a result a lot faster. Um, and I loved it. Like it was one of my favorite campaigns because it took that type of visibility and almost that type of pressure to get the owner to really um, pay up. 
I think the second campaign that we did um, was really focused around stop and frisk in New York City was a policy that was impacting specifically black and brown youth. They're being, they're being stopped um, at much higher rates than any other community. Um, and on top of that, they were being ticketed for really like jaywalking offenses and just kind of really dumb offenses. And it came out through different through litigation and different interviews that officers were just trying to make a quota. And in doing so, they were really traumatizing black and brown um, men, young men in New York City. And so we worked with the New York Civil Liberties Union, who had created an app that if a young person was stopped and was shaken violently enough, the app would start recording the interaction with the conversations. And it was through one of those conversations that we were able to get the audio of a 17-year-old Puerto Rican boy from East Harlem that had been stopped by police, was roughed up. Um, They were incredibly rude. And it was his audio that allowed us to build a campaign that supported the stop and frisk litigation that told the stories of young people. And they named their and we trained young people to be digital organizers, digital advocates, um, and they called their campaign more than a quota. And through more than a quota, they created a digital storytelling campaign where they shared who they were and that they were not a quota. A lot of them were like, I'm a dancer, I'm an artist, I'm I do this, I do that. And on top of that, We also created two digital activation spaces where people got to walk into a physical space and be basically kind of stereotyped and put into tracks so they could experience what it's like to be a young person of color in New York City and then what it's and what the impact is around incarceration rates, detention rates. And then there was also the physical activation of we packed the courts. During litigation, we had young people pack the courts almost every day. And we did that on purpose so that the judge and and everybody could see this is a community that's impacted and who wants to speak up and who cares deeply about what this outcome is. And it was all young people under 18. And so that type of digital activation with the physical activation on top of the litigation strategy brought a whole bunch of awareness with the media um, and presented opportunities for young people to also learn how to activate their own agency um, for their own civil rights. And so both those campaigns for me are some of the best campaigns that both utilize the litigation strategy, as well as a communications or a digital um, activation strategy that would allow us to organize community, tell the story and get to a faster um, result than just litigation alone. First, both of those are incredible. And it's it's amazing to hear how organizations can step in and support these big problems that tend to just be closed door conversations in courtrooms or by people that maybe are distanced from it. And what your examples just showcased is that if we can open these doors and turn these conversations into more of these public debates where the doors are open and people can actually contribute to the policies or the the decisions that are going to impact them most. But that wouldn't be possible without marketing and communication. Like you, the campaign opened the doors on the courtroom to be able to say, no, this is a bigger conversation. This can't just happen in a room. This needs to happen out in public. And we're going to make sure that we expose how important this is to the people that are going to be impacted. One thing that stood out to me about your title, and I kind of want to end on this because I think it's it's a really important issue, is you're not only the VP of Innovation and Communications at HIP, but you're also the Innovation, Equity, and Communications. And you have these three aspects of your title. Can you talk to us about how listeners can focus on equity, access, inclusion, and innovation and how they design their platforms or design their campaigns? And any any guidance you have as we seek to embed equity into our campaigns, or at least have that as a consideration when we're designing our campaigns? 
Yeah, great question. And I'm gonna be I'm gonna be straight up. Um, <laughs> the way to do that for those of us that are working in marketing is that you really have to stop and question the lens in which you're telling the story. So a lot of times we're telling these stories through white dominant um, frameworks or their heteronormative frameworks. And so you have to be able to stop and see if your language, your photos, your terminology, is it inclusive of the communities that you are engaging with? Is it making anyone feel left out? Is it offending anyone in some way? And detaching from white dominant narratives is not easy um, because we've been conditioned to be able to think in these ways for so long that I think having people pause and try to ask the questions is really hard because they don't know what question to ask. But if we're looking at the, at, 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 the, at an intersectional approach to a campaign, and again, I've seen, I've seen brands that have done a really great job around this um, and the ways in which they've incorporated trans communities, LGBTQ um, audiences, and they've done a great job because even if I'm not LGBT and trans, I deeply relate to the empathy that they're creating within their commercial or, or their marketing materials, right? And looking at, oh man, I hope that somebody would receive me in that way or my community or whatever that is. So in understanding just kind of how, you know, how you're telling these stories and to who and the mechanisms and the platforms that you're using and who are the spokespeople, right? The spokespeople are going to be really important in terms of like understanding who is delivering that message because that is also going to be very important. And are they, and is it a diverse roster of people, right? A lot of times when people think of diversity, you also have to ask yourself, what is it diverse from? right? Like what is the, what is the status quo around our marketing campaigns? What does it generally look like? Um, and understanding that most people in, in the U, in the United States these days are not going to be reflective of what was the status quo anymore, right? We're looking at um, whether it's gender neutrality or kind of like the inclusion of different gender identities um, or also Latine, Latinx communities, right? How is it that we're talking about the communities? Are you asking them how they want to be called? Are you asking them again, what their story is first before assuming we know what that is, is I just can't like emphasize that enough. Um, and there's a lot of marketing materials out there that help move people beyond these white dominant narratives so that they can frame it in a different lens, in a different light. It gives me hope. Like I feel like I'm seeing it a lot more, but it's not an easy, it's not an easy skill. Like it takes continuous practice. And I also think folks are afraid to ask because they think they're going to be rude. So I, or, or they're going to seem like they're not, uh, they don't know enough or they're dumb for not knowing these things. But everything is so fluid in this moment that it is better to approach it from an authentic space of, of asking as opposed to assume, assuming or making these broad assumptions of what it is. Because if you do, you're going to get it wrong. And then you're going to cause more harm to the community and you're going to cause more harm to your organization or to your brand. And it's just going to be a hot mess. So don't be afraid to ask the questions if you're not sure what it is and engage with those impacted directly to understand how is it that you're going to tell that story away from a white narrative. Yeah, you've said it a few times, and I think where I'm ending the conversation, even for my own self, and I would encourage your listeners as well, is that we need to take more pause in how we approach our marketing, because just as others have tools that are for good and can be dangerous. We as marketers and communicators have the same set of tools, our same set of constraints around the tools that we use and how are we using them to expand aperture and open up opportunities and to shine a light on the stories that are true 
you know, good marketing is true first and foremost. It's not a narrative. It's not a created thing. It's actually a like spotlight that we can be able to shift and move around. Um, and that opening up opportunities. And words matter and how you word things matter, right? I think for us at Hispanics of Philanthropy, you know, when at the height of family separation, we weren't using caravan. We weren't using, in like, you know, you, you hear, I think, listen to what the, the, the current counter narrative is and ensure that you're not feeding it, right? Like, don't feed into these ideas of what you're going up against, but really, again, frame it from the perspective of communities and those impacted first, as opposed to kind of fueling these other larger things that aren't, that not, aren't really telling that story either. Absolutely. Jasmine, I've really appreciated the time we've spent together. And there's been so much content that's been helpful that others can learn from, but also be inspired by the work and the impact that you've made throughout your career. So if listeners want to connect with you and or connect with HIP, where would you point them to? Well, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm um, just Jasmine Chavez. So J-A-Z-M-I-N-C-H-A-V-E-Z. Always happy to connect with folks. Um, always willing to learn new things or talk through things. Um, and then you can also check out our website, HIP Funds. So H-I-P-F-U-N-D-S dot org. And you can get involved with our campaigns, learn more about our incredible, incredible programs and our teams. Um, but those are the two places that I would check out and obviously follow HIP, um, Hispanics and Philanthropy across social media because you'll see that we have a lot of content we're pushing out on the daily with a lot of information. Yeah, excellent. And I think we can all be inspired by what others are doing, even if we're in a completely different cause area. So definitely check out um, hipfun.org and follow them around social. Jasmine, this has been great. And I look forward to having you again here in the studio in the future. Thank you so much, Noah. I love this connection. I love the podcast. So thank you so much. Thank you.